This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Fidelity, financial planning that moves with your life. Learn more at fidelity.com slash your goals. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSC SIPC. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, good afternoon. This is Tolu Olorunipa with The Washington Post. Hi, this is Amy Britton calling from The Post. This is Peter Jameson from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, October 1st. Today, what happens when Uber rides go wrong? The attorney general's interactions with foreign officials and the woman who embodied the true meaning of diva. Well, the the, the special investigations unit at Uber and a similarly functioning one at Lyft, these are the last line of defense when something happens. Sort of an expectation that the company's going to vouch for these people in a way that doesn't quite work in the gig economy. I'm Greg Bensinger. I'm a technology reporter with The Washington Post in San Francisco. Greg has been reporting on Uber's internal investigation unit. They're the people who respond when a significant issue has occurred during a ride. I talked to over 20 current and former investigators. And Greg wanted to find out. This unit that was created to help keep riders and drivers safe... Is it actually increasing safety? So the the people who who I spoke with just felt like, at the end of the day, this division should be about safety. And and it is, but they also felt like it's a business and it's set up to help the business and, and in a way that isn't always about safety first. As far as the caseload goes and as far as the reports that are coming in, it's a Good, I would say maybe 30% of cases that have to do with uh, sexual assaults. One of the investigators I spoke with is Lily Flores. She worked in the Phoenix office. She was an investigator and a trainer of investigators. So the Special Investigations Unit handles anything that can go wrong during an Uber trip. Uh, So they'll handle anything from minor accidents to major accidents, um, small incidents like maybe losing your phone, all the way up to things such as physical assault, sexual assault, you know, things that are really serious um, that shouldn't be happening during a trip. What does an investigator for Uber actually do? Like, what does their day-to-day work life look like? Well, they sit at a computer. Uh, It kind of looks like a uh, call center. They're not contractors. They're all employees. And they sit there with a headphone and these tickets come in. So basically what happens is, say something happens during your trip, you're able to report it through the Uber app. That'll go to a team that's able to mitigate and kind of say, you know, this is something minor, we can handle this with just a, you know, maybe a refund or something, like a small reply. Or if it's something more major, they'll send it um, through a the special investigations unit team. Um, so what they'll do there is they'll hand it off to different investigators um, as like sort of their daily load. And then that person will then reach out to all parties involved, whether it be drivers, writers, third parties, and they'll try to find out, you know, the facts of the case. Um, And then they'll make decisions regarding, you know, if people can stay online using the app, if they need to be deactivated, so on and so forth, based off of those facts and decisions. Uber does not disclose what what actions they've, they've taken with the driver or a passenger for that matter. So they wouldn't tell the driver you know, this passenger who harassed you is off the platform. Generally, what they tell people is, don't worry, you know, the system is designed now so that you won't be paired with that person anymore. So when you summon a car, 
you're just not going to get that driver. Now, that's not very satisfying for a lot of passengers and, and drivers because it means that somebody who they think is a bad actor is still out there and, and is just using the app with other people. We can say, you know, sorry to hear about this happening. If it happens again, let us know. And people are usually made to feel less than by such comments because they feel as though their concerns aren't being met. There are cases that investigators told me about where, you know, they were involved at the late stage of a, of a, of a driver who had multiple accusations. And investigators before them weren't able to corroborate them. But, you know, sort of the pattern emerged of them getting alleged to have done something over and over again. And as they described it, they have a, a strikes policy where you, you get a certain number of strikes for certain types of allegations, and you're supposed to be off the platform. It's that simple. And a lot of investigators can remember one or two or five different times where you know, they made the recommendation that enough allegations have come in, even uncorroborated, that this person should not be on Uber anymore. And a manager overturned it for one reason or another. But if they do determine that a driver committed a serious act, like if they have evidence that a driver committed an assault or something like that, what happens then? Is that when they actually do deactivate a driver? Yeah, that's the, that, that's the course of action. And, you know, I would point out that this troubled some investigators too, which is that at the end of the day, the sort of the, the heaviest hand is a deactivation. And this bothered people. You know, they would, they would get credible evidence that somebody did something that could be a felony in some cases. And the punishment is, well, you can't work for us anymore. But they can just go and drive for Lyft. And, you know, people relate to me lots of examples of people who ended up just driving for Lyft when they got deactivated from Uber. And these investigators felt like, you know, this person shouldn't be in a car anywhere. They shouldn't be driving people around. The lack of communication between the rideshare apps really puts people in a very dangerous position where one person can be deactivated for inappropriately doing something on one app, it's not going to be communicated to any other apps, so they can drive for whatever rideshare app they choose to do so, uh, which is very concerning. And I know that I'm not the only person who feels that way. A lot of the other investigators have a great deal of morale issues with not being able to report certain incidents to law enforcement or to other rideshare apps to prevent other people from being harmed. Yeah, well, when they hear about something that, as you said, could be a felony, don't they report that to police? Well, they really don't. Uber feels very strongly that they've told me they feel very strongly that it's not their position to go to the authorities on behalf of a customer. They say customers should be able to tell this story, particularly if it's sexual misconduct. Uh, you know, it's a very personal matter. And uh, so, so they, as a policy, they won't go to police on their own. There's a lot of investigators out there who have a very tough time with that fact. Uh, it's very hard to get off the phone with somebody who has said that they've been victim of a sexual assault and not want to immediately call the police, especially if you have the evidence stating that this person violated somebody else. Um, and it makes people very uncomfortable. At this time, though, the only thing they are allowed to take to law enforcement is if somebody is giving any sort of threats of suicide. Recently, they've told investigators, you have the option of telling a alleged victim that this sounds like something that's pretty serious, where, where if law enforcement was involved, this person could be in real trouble. Would you feel comfortable with me contacting law enforcement on your behalf? And that's a recent change they've made. 
But historically, they haven't done anything like that. So there's no conversation that they, at least before this change, there's no conversation that they were having with customers saying, well, it sounds like the thing that happened to you might have been a crime. Here's what you can do to contact police. Here's how we are going to help you if you do decide to file a police report or like any laying out of what a process of seeking justice would look like? No. And in fact, a lot of the investigators, not all of them, but a lot of the investigators said that their strong impression through the training and through just their work there was that they could actually get in trouble for telling people to do that. Uh, mm. they, could get, they could get reprimanded by management. The, you know, the idea is that victims should have the, the choice of doing this on their own. They don't want police to get involved because that may be embarrassing or it may be traumatic to have to relive whatever happened. But there's another issue which a lot of investigators brought up, which is that they felt that part of the reason they didn't want people to be encouraged to take things to police where they, they might is that then it becomes public and then it becomes a public matter. And that's, that's not good for Uber to have these things become public en masse. I know that it is a very, it's almost a very tribal knowledge kind of feeling going on amongst the special investigations team currently that anything that they are saying is to protect Uber's name, which I believe to be true with any company. However, people don't feel as though maybe they're doing the right thing and they're only protecting the Uber name. Is there also a sense that this is like a liability issue too, that Uber could be sued? Yeah, that's a big issue. I mean, you know, they don't want these things to be, they don't want these rides to be unsafe. I, I don't want to suggest that they, they're okay with that, but there is a concern about their image. There's a concern about real liability in terms of court cases. And, and, and of course, safety is a concern too. What did the company say when you put to them that like maybe they're, this investigative unit actually isn't helping people's safety the way it could be? Well, they... They did not agree. Uh, they, they were very clear that, you know, safety to them is a, a number one priority. And, you know, I don't believe Uber wants unsafe rides. That's not good for business and it's not good for, for society. But they said, look, this, is, this, is, this division is set up in a certain way. We've had a lot of input from, from outside organizations that told us this is how it should operate for various reasons. And, you know, we've, we feel strongly that we've taken safety as our first priority. And, you know, Uber feels like it's taking all the right actions. That, that includes things like rolling background checks of their drivers, buttons within the app where you can alert authorities if something happens, you know, better tracking systems. They, they have a way of looking now to see if a ride goes off course or uh, they have a, a, a new code they, uh, they're offering to make sure you're getting in the right car. You don't want you getting in a, a stranger's car that's not an Uber. So they have taken a lot of actions to help ensure that this is, you know, this is functioning the right way. But, you know, that's, that's sort of a different picture from these special investigations units, people who are doing the job every day, who feel like company business concerns are also at the forefront of how this unit operates. I also think that what's interesting here is that this is all kind of wrapped up in how Uber thinks of itself as a company. Like you always hear them talk about we are a tech company, that the drivers are not our employees, they're contractors. And we're basically a company that facilitates transactions between riders and drivers. But I think that that puts them in a particularly 
precarious position when they're trying to sort out these very real-world safety issues with very serious implications while still trying to maintain that they're, like, ultimately not responsible for making sure that every ride is safe. Well, you're right. It presents an unusual problem that we haven't seen before. Uh, the, the, the new gig economy is working itself out in many ways. You know, what is the responsibility of these companies that arrange these things to ensure that the product is safe and is what customers wanted and expected? And generally, the courts have held that companies like Uber are a marketplace and the goods that are used and sold through that are the, the responsibility of the seller and the buyer, uh, in this case, the passenger and the, and the, and the driver. And so Uber has benefited from that position in the world uh, where, where courts have held that, but it is working itself out. They're, uh, you know, they're fighting a, a bill here in California that would make these contract drivers more like employees and that carries a lot of risks for them. Among them is liability risks, but also it's expensive. They're going to have to pay for a lot more labor costs for these people. And so there's a lot of reasons for them to feel like this isn't the right course of action. Drivers like flexibility. If you make them like employees, we might have to have shifts. But of course, it also comes back to this. What's our responsibility if they're employees to the quality of the rides and, and what happens on them. Greg Bensinger covers technology for The Washington Post in San Francisco. So if you think back to last week when we got this rough transcript of the phone call, the July phone call between President Zelensky and President Trump. I made a call. The call was perfect. Uh, when the whistleblower reported it, he made it sound terrible. We had already known that President Trump pressured President Zelensky to investigate the Bidens. But what was revelatory about that rough transcript was that it showed not just this pressure, but that President Trump had offered the services of his own attorney general, Bill Barr, to assist in this investigation. Matt Sapatosky covers the Justice Department for The Post. And he also brought up another investigation, sort of an investigation into the origins of the FBI's Russia interference investigation that I guess he also thought Bill Barr could help with. But there was a lot of corruption having to do with the 2016 election against us. And we want to get to the bottom of it. And it's very important that we do. Thank you very much. The invocation of his attorney general was one of the most notable in that rough transcript because we had already known so much about it previously from reporting. So since then, people have been wondering what exactly is Attorney General Barr's connection with all of this? And so there have been some revelations about that over the past week. So in the weeks after the Mueller investigation had formally concluded, Bill Barr revealed that he was appointing this guy, John Durham, to essentially investigate the investigators. We didn't know exactly what the concern was. John Durham had this broad mandate to just kind of go back over the Mueller probe and even before the Mueller probe to the FBI investigation that became the Mueller probe and look at whether anything was done wrong. So we were aware that that effort was kind of ongoing 
What we're learning now is that this hasn't just been John Durham, a fairly well-respected U.S. attorney investigating the investigators. Bill Barr has personally inserted himself into this. He is taking trips abroad to press his foreign counterparts to help investigate the investigators. We learn that President Trump is calling his foreign counterparts, particularly the Prime Minister of Australia, to encourage them to help in this investigation of the investigators. So the new thing is the personal involvement kind of of Bill Barr in particular and also President Trump, these people who are very political. You know, I, I think when, when we knew about this in investigation of the investigators, Bill Barr's personal involvement just strikes people as a little weird and like, what's going on here? And is it normal to have the attorney general reaching out to foreign officials about this? I would imagine that's something that's more in the purview of like the State Department or diplomats. Not at all. The attorney general's personal involvement here and particularly going abroad himself is the unusual aspect of this. The Justice Department has an Office of International Affairs. I mean, we need foreign countries help with investigations sometime, but there's just like a process that works on a much lower level to make sure that happens. The attorney general personally going over and getting involved is pretty weird. The Justice Department says, well, he's just trying to like make introductions or like pave the way for Durham. But it's even weird for Bill Barr to do that. We have people, the Justice Department has people, the FBI has people stationed abroad, legal attaches stationed abroad. They're the ones who, you know, open the door, make the introductions, make the formal requests. It's not the attorney general himself. So that is what is kind of unusual here. And so in the broader context of this impeachment inquiry, how does this part about Attorney General Barr fit in? So I think it fits in in a couple ways. One, it just helps explain the Ukraine call a little bit. Not necessarily the Biden aspect of it, but the other aspect of President Trump asking Ukraine to help him investigate the investigators. We now know a little bit more about that effort. Lawmakers have shown an interest, too, in Bill Barr himself, you know, his role in all of this. We'll see how this ends up for him. But keep in mind that his Justice Department is the one that prevented this complaint from going to Congress in the first place. There's a lot of question about what his motives are here, what he's up to. And this is just, you know, another another data point of him fitting into President Trump's desires to spark investigations, both of his political opponents or of those who have investigated him. And is there an expectation that Congress is going to ask him to come on the Hill to testify both about his role in the release of the whistleblower complaint, but also about all these meetings and conversations he's been having with foreign officials? We will see. I mean, I would certainly expect that they're really going to press him to get on the Hill because he's at the center of all of this. But you know, his Justice Department has been at the center of resisting all kinds of congressional demands. And I can't imagine that he would really be a star witness for them. I think in a lot of areas, he would just refuse to talk about his conversations that are part of an ongoing investigation or refuse to talk about his dealings with the president or maybe refuse to show up at all. He's been held in contempt twice. I mean, he seems to have very little patience for Congress. Certainly, they would want him to come and tell all, but I would doubt he's going to do that in a way that would satisfy Democrats in particular. So as you know, ever since the release of the Mueller report, there have been a lot of Democratic lawmakers who have basically suggested that William Barr is, for lack of a better term, in the can for the president. So these new revelations about his interactions with foreign officials, 
do they give fodder to Democrats who think that the Justice Department right now is working for the president? Yeah, if you flash back to the Mueller report, Bill Barr, before the report is released, puts out what he terms it, the principal conclusion of the Mueller report. He essentially says no, uh, no obstruction, no collusion. It closely hews to President Trump's talking points. And here we see another example of him doing something that President Trump might view as discrediting Mueller's investigation. He's investigating the investigators and, and personally getting involved in that. So in that respect, yes. Democrats are going to seize on that and say, this is not an independent Justice Department. This is not the leader of an independent Justice Department. Let me ask you about the attorney general. He's gone rogue. Mika. This is somebody who's just serving President Trump's personal interests in, in trying to, and this is Democrats, of course, but Democrats would say he's trying to hide Mueller's true findings from the public and that now he's trying to discredit Mueller. Well, I think where they're going is a cover-up of the cover-up. And that's really very sad for them. And that to have a Justice Department go so rogue, well, they have been for a while. Right. And now it just makes matters worse. I think, though, to be fair, Bill Barr would say, look, I have real genuine concerns about the origin of the Mueller probe. He would also say, in, to the past criticism, you can criticize my principal conclusions, but I gave you all the whole Mueller report. Judge it for what you want. I'm not trying to protect anybody. And I think... You know, just from covering the department, a little bit of what is at play here is that Bill Barr ends up doing things that President Trump wants, but in, that's in part because Bill Barr also wants those things. He's a very staunch believer in broad executive power. He doesn't believe Congress, forget who is the president, Congress shouldn't be messing around in the executive branch at all. He's a longtime defense attorney. You know, he takes a dimmer view of what constitutes a crime than, say, a longtime prosecutor would. So, you know, and you'll have Democrats saying, well, he's just in the can for Trump. But a part of what is at play here is his interests just kind of line up with Trump's pretty well. And he would say he has genuine interest in pursuing these things. Matt Sapatosky covers the Justice Department for The Post. What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one -on -one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC. And brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And now, one more thing. Jesse Norman, the renowned opera star, died on Monday at the age of 74. The word iconic gets thrown around a lot in classical music, but Jesse Norman truly had the presence of a diva, which of course means goddess in Italian. She was a very tall woman and she had this incredibly beautiful face and she could open her mouth and just unleash these floods of sound.
I'm Anne Majette. I'm the classical music critic for The Washington Post. Jesse Norman was an iconic African-American operatic soprano, active in the 1970s, 1980s, into the 1990s, who was somehow unique in the opera world. She certainly did normal operatic roles, but she had a kind of presence and this force of nature aura to her that made her truly memorable and distinctive in almost anything she did. Like many African-American singers, particularly of her generation, she got her musical start, at least in part, in the church singing gospel. I feel comfortable singing in the great cathedrals of the world because I spent so much time as a child singing in church. Mm -hmm. And it isn't very different. She had a fairly young rise at the beginning and won a scholarship to Howard University where she studied. One of her first appearances was at the Cathedral Choral Society in Washington, D.C., when the music critic allegedly said, who is that young woman? You have to tend to it. I mean, whether that instrument lives inside of your body or whether it sort of lives on the top of your shoulder. But you have to know how your voice feels. But then also, like many singers, of both colors at that era because there were fewer opera houses in America at the time. She went to Europe to make her career as a young artist. One of the issues that African-American singers have hit in opera is the fundamentally racist question of who can kiss who on stage and who wants to interact with who in drama. Achieving colorblind casting has been a very difficult thing, and singers like Norman have helped to break down doors, which today are much much wider open in a field that nonetheless remains far too white for comfort. And that's another reason for her great importance for all singers, but as a particularly beloved figure in the African-American community, somebody who managed to get through those doors and open them wide and hold them wide for the generation after her. When I heard that Jesse Norman had died, one of the first things I thought of was her recording of Richard Strauss's Four Last Songs with Kurt Mazur, which has been a personal touchstone for me throughout my life since I was a teenager. And what I realized in the hours since she's died is that that album has been a personal touchstone for, it seems like, the majority of classical music lovers. It's just such an amazing recording. And she somehow embodies so perfectly the warm, ethereal spirit of these songs In the third song, which is called Going to Sleep, and which is about death, that as you go to sleep, your soul flows free. The violin does this beautiful, arcing, otherworldly melody. Then her voice comes in after that. And I've always been struck by the violin making this pure sound that you can't believe could be any better and then her voice comes in with all the warmth of humanity behind it describing the same path and it's it's sublime
Jett is a classical music critic for The Post. Thanks to the PBS NewsHour for the use of their interview with Jesse Norman. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. If you haven't heard, Post Reports has a daily email blast. You can receive an email notification every afternoon right when a new episode drops. So you know what to expect before you pop in your earbuds on your commute home. To sign up, go to postreports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC, and brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC.